Hello listeners, my name's Alex, I'm the producer on For and Against with DM Podcasts. Just a little note at the top of the episode, we had some technical difficulties with the microphones in this record, so the guys do sound a little bit like they're far away from the mic, it's a bit echoey, so bear with us for this episode with that, and apologies in advance, but it's still of course a great episode, so please enjoy. Yes, hello and welcome to For and Against, where we look at the big issues in sport off the field of play. It's Paul Roach with you here as always, and well, we're running Lee in this show, coming to you now with our, our MVP, that being our minimal viable product, with just Jono, Simon Johnson, joining me on the panel. G'day, Jono, how are you going? G'day, Roach, it's just the two of us tonight. It is. Two-hander. It is. Have you heard this expression before? The, uh, the MVP in your corporate travels? I have not heard that expression. The minimum viable product. Mm, yes. I like it though. Yeah, so it's basically sort of let's get to market really quickly with as little as effort as possible and then worry about the bells and whistles later. Thought you were calling me the most valuable player, but clearly not. You know, Deli- me up the garden. I deliberately created that ambiguity because now when I hear it in the corporate world, which is going to hear more of, all I think you can think of is, is Michael Jordan. But it's oh, just yeah. a minimum viable product. Great. Anyway, so look out for that in your, in your local uh, corporate space. Uh, coming up in the show, the matter of free speech in sport and in sports media, with an incident involving Gary Lineker and the BBC triggering some serious discussion about where the limits are. We'll be joined shortly by journalist Kevin Sangster to explore this vexing issue further. We'll also look into the mooted expansion of both the NRL and A-League, applaud a FIFA about-face, and also talk supercars, arguably facing something of an existential crisis. Of course, we'll wrap it all up with red card, yellow card, where we enjoy poking funds at our sporting friends who've done something silly off the field of play and we drag it back into the spotlight. Please do use the hashtag RCYC, as in red card, yellow card, on your favourite social media channel if you happen to see one that you feel we should include in the show. And speaking of social media, you can find us on Twitter at for and against. It doesn't really matter. At for and against, I'm And on insta, against. But let's get into the show. It's a topic that comes up from time to time on for and against. How far can you take the concept of free speech in the context of sport? Well, there have been a few bits of grist for the mill recently that warrant us revisiting, but there's also one big one, that being Gary Lineker, John O, being stood down as host of that BBC institution match of the day when he criticised British government immigration policy, which I believe they're calling Stop Boats, uh, on his, being Gary's, personal Twitter account. Wow, did that open a can of worms? Massive story over in the UK, isn't it? Or it has been for the past little while. I'd suggest it's jump the fence, it's not just in the UK, but uh, joining us now, indeed rejoining for and against, is uh, journalist Kevin Sangster, who's writing you will find at the Inner Sanctum and Yahoo Sport. Uh, Kev, we'll talk about the reaction and fallout in a sec, but what did you make, first of all, of the decision itself? Okay, well, first of all, thanks for having me back, guys. Uh, appreciate the uh, the opportunity to come on and, um, and give my point of view on uh, a subject that's quite close to my heart in um being a POM, I've had a lot of feedback from this from the UK. Um, it was bizarre. Uh, and I think the uh, 
the main thing that I took out of what happened was the way that the BBC handled it was uh, was pretty poor. But uh, happy to uh, explain for the uh, the audience the ins and outs of it, if you like. Yeah, go go ahead. So you say it's pretty poor. It was handled pretty poorly. Um, so just expand on that a bit for us. So what element was it? Was it the fact that he got punted, or was it the PR that surrounded it? Well, I mean, obviously, this is a this is a sports podcast, but uh, it, it got quite political in the UK. So, just for the benefit of the audience, um, what happened was Gary Lineker, who has his own uh, Twitter account, commented on a policy around the immigration policy of the UK, which has been quite controversial at the moment, uh, and basically likened the, uh, some of the language that was coming out of the government uh, to 1930s Germany, which obviously upset a few people. Probably most importantly, it, it seemed to upset a few people in the government. And as a result of that, the BBC stood him down from match of the day for those comments. Or I think they initially asked him to apologise and he said no. Uh, and then to make matters worse, two of his co-commentators, Ian Wright and Alan Shearer, um, basically down tools in his support. Uh, and as a result, they had to cancel match of the day. Or ultimately, they actually ran the show with no commentary and just highlights. Uh, which is a little bit embarrassing, I think, for the BBC. So the question was, in the UK, should Gary Lineker be getting involved in political comment when he's uh, an employee of the BBC, or should he have the right to say what he likes on a subject that's nothing to do with his job? So that was the debate. I'd be interested to see uh, what you what your initial thoughts were. Yeah, it's a really interesting one, isn't it, Kev? Because it crosses that line between free speech, as, as you kick things off with, Rochie, and, you know, whether or not Gary was making these comments in his role as an mm. individual or in his position as an employee of the BBC. And is so, it possible to separate the two? And I think in this day and age, it, it really is almost impossible, isn't it? I mean, I think we were told, or I was certainly told, a little while ago that anything you say on social media you've got to imagine that your grandmother could be reading it the next day so from his perspective surely he would have known when he put out that tweet that that was potentially going to be something that his employer would look at don't get me wrong i'm not defending the bbc's decision here at all and i think something that kev mentioned about the politics really needs to be examined a little bit more as well you've got a you know a right-wing government over in the UK in the same way that up until a year or so ago we had in Australia and we had all that criticism of the ABC um, by the Liberal government as it then was. And I think the politics of this is something that really you know, has created more of a, a storm than it otherwise might have. Actually, Kev, that's that's a question for you. I know you've, you've lived in Australia for nine or 20 years, but as you point out, quite rightly, you spent a bit of time in the UK prior to that. Is the BBC as much a political football in the UK as the ABC is here? I know we're going slightly off tack, but I think it's relevant. Well, that's a really good question because up until literally the Lineker situation a couple of weeks ago, I, I personally would have said no. But some of the things that have come out as a result of this would suggest that that actually is the case. I mean, just, just to clarify, um, Lineker's position is that, and this is, I've looked into this and um, and his contractual situation is, although he earned £1.35 million last year um, from the BBC, he is technically a freelancer. Nice. It's tiny. Yeah. So he earns a lot of money, um, but he's not actually uh, a permanent employee of the BBC. He does other things and, um, and therefore he's engaged as a freelancer. And his argument was, I'm a freelancer. I can say what I like on a subject that's not related to what I'm engaged 
with the BBC on, mm. then you get the argument of, and it tends to go down political lines from what I can gather. Um, if you disagreed with what he said, then people say, well, he probably shouldn't be commenting on that as a member of the BBC. If you do agree with what he said, then people said, well, he's entitled to his, his opinion. And it's nothing to do with football. Well, Kev, I was going to say, I mean, you and I are, are on an interesting WhatsApp group, um, which, you know, certainly won't name names or anything, but there was, I think it's fair to say, diversity of views in that across, what, a dozen people in the back and forth that, that you and I and others had over that period of time. And there were some very legitimate arguments for both sides. And you know, I think we had some insights for some, from some people who either there was. currently worked or, uh, or recently worked for the BBC. But um, I think your point's, your point's interesting there, Kevin. Pretty correct if you agree with what he said. <laughs> then <laughs> he's got a right to say it. And if he didn't, then he's, uh, you know, he's beholden to the, the, the mores of his employer. But I, I suppose it's interesting because it's, it's one thing for... And let's leave aside the interesting point, Kev, about Lineker being, you know, the, the, his employment, the technicalities of employment. It's one thing for someone who has developed a profile as a result of being a BBC personality to then espouse certain views. But it's another thing altogether, I think, when you have someone who is a personality in their own right, who then, probably because of that profile, gets the gig that, in this case, Lineker has with the BBC to then be criticised for saying something. I know that's... You know, you could argue that semantics a little bit, but I think I think that's important. Lineker's got a profile not because of his job. He's got a he's got a profile before his job. And in fact, he's got that role because of his profile. As an employer, you've got to kind of expect that that person has some rights. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Has some sort of entitlement to 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 cast his or her view as that individual, not as a, a employee. Inverted commas of in this case the BBC. The Australian analogy might be someone like Craig Foster, who you know has yep. that um, personality. He used to be a, a top player in our game, obviously, and now is one of our um, you know, best known commentators at the SBS. Um, one can't imagine him being um, or having the, the, the same thing happen to him with SBS. Um, perhaps a different organisation, different political views. Um, perhaps. True, and I know you're just using him as an analogy, but he's now also the chair of the Australian Republican movement. So, you know, what happens if, if, if the SPS didn't like that, et cetera, et cetera. But look, we can, we can sort of go on in the, the deep, dark detail of this one, and I'm sure we'll come back to it. But, but what's interesting is, you know, a couple of the other freedom of speech kind of things that have, that have popped up. And, and let's come back to Australian shores. Now, of course, various Aussie athletes have taken stands and or courted controversy for speaking out, including our Aussie cricketers not that long ago. So I was interested to read that former New South Wales Premier and now Cricket Australia Chair, as a sort of, I think it was Feb 2023, uh, Mike Baird, he was right behind Pat Cummins for voicing his opinions. So Baird was quoted as saying, it's really important that our leaders are authentic. Pat has strong views. There are different views in the community, but that's fine. Pat has every right to be in that debate. That's my italics. But it's interesting that, as I say, an incoming Chair of Cricket Australia has been fairly clear that in this case, the Australian captain, I'm guessing the opinion would, would extend to the players, that he has every right to be in that debate. Yeah, and I think part of that is generational, isn't it? I mean, Pat's uh, a guy in his late 20s and, you know, that generation of people, not just in sport, but, you know, in society generally, are probably more confident um, in standing up for their personal views, be that in their place of employment or generally or otherwise. And as Baird said, I thought it was a really interesting quote, he said, um, you don't want to be in a position that they're not being true to themselves, not following what they believe in. And, and I think that's exactly what a leader should do. So I think that's one of the reasons why Cummins is regarded as, as such an excellent leader, both on the field, but in this case, off the field as well. Kev, with the Nash's tour coming up, surely you want to pour some sort of fuel on that fire and disagree vehemently with, uh, with us and or Pat? 
his job is to promote cricket in Australia. Um, and so he was actually diffusing the situation by saying that, uh, backing his player and saying everybody's got a right to their opinion. Mm. Uh, doesn't necessarily need to be the, um, the position of, of Cricket Australia. So I, I thought that was a really good intervention by Baird. And I, I, I thought that was exactly the opposite of what the BBC did. Mm. There's room for nuance here, isn't there? There is. The irony is with the BBC is that they, they stood Lineker down on the basis of impartiality. You need to be impartial if you're, if you're an employee of the BBC. The irony was, as it came out, um, as obviously it became big news because the flagship football program was uh, was taken off air effectively was they turned out that the uh, the BBC were being influenced by the government to stand Lineker down or oh, that was the argument anyway and therefore you've got to then question the BBC's impartiality mm. so it was a bit of a to use a football analogy a bit of an own goal but I, I thought what Baird did with Cummins was uh, was spot on. Well, let's explore another example we've got where the politicians influence some of this, and this is the politicians in trying to influence a sports person for, for their their gain. So, uh, thinking Lewis Hamilton here now, he's utilised his position at the top of the pile in Formula One for, for a number of years to pr- promote causes close to his heart. Um, and as an aside, the FIA recently has been has attempted to stop drivers from speaking their mind, but I think that's sort of been averted for the time being. But um, So some English politicians were actually urging Hamilton and other drivers to boycott races, the first two in particular being Bahrain and Saudi Arabia. Hello, sports washing. Now, in an open letter to Formula One, a Lord Scriven, who's the vice chairman of the all-party parliamentary group on democracy and human rights in the Gulf, said Lewis and others would be correct to say that unless Formula One and the FIA put in place a framework in line with the UN's guiding principles on human rights that he and other drivers would feel uncomfortable about racing and arguably, uh, therefore, uh, should be able to to boycott them. So this is sports people sports people being used as an instrument of power. Do you, I mean, I kind of picture Lord Scriven in an all-male English gents club, <laughs> perhaps uh, typing this out on an old typewriter and sending it out, but perhaps I'm wrong. Maybe Lord Scriven is on the, the side of right here. Who knows? I think... I mean, a quick comment on this, um, Rochi, just generally speaking. Um, I mean, it's all very well when we're talking about free speech and how noble it is in some ways, but you only have to look at a couple of examples for the past 12 to 18 months where it has gone pear-shaped. And you look at the the manly seagulls with the rainbow round and what happened there and obviously with Israel Folau and same-sex marriage. So um, whilst it's, you know, a fundamentally good thing. I think that you have these players who um, and sports people who are prepared to speak out on these issues. It doesn't always go well. So, is it the way it's managed, or is it the, is it the incident itself that there's the the inverted commas problem, or is it the relative way in which it, it's managed? I mean, Kev made the good point that Baird probably managed that situation fairly intelligently. Maybe yeah. others are a bit more knee-jerk reaction. I think it's a, I mean, I hate this word, but it is a nuanced thing, isn't it? it depends. I think it's a great word. It's an important word in discussions like, like these. But it, it, it depends, doesn't it, on, on what the issue is and, you know, where the social mores perhaps stand and probably the way in which these players express themselves as well. Mm. Well, last one, at the opposite end of the spectrum, it's not all, it's not all beer and Skittles if you do choose to utilise uh, your right to free speech. Um, so still on F1, former world champion Nelson Piquet, so he's just been ordered to pay near enough to $1.5 million Australian 
by a Brazilian court for some racist and homophobic comments that he made about Lewis Hamilton. He was a red card nominee. I think about this very thing. I think you're right. Several John. weeks ago. Yeah. We definitely talked about it. That's right. Um, and, yeah, he called Hamilton some nasty things. Not to his face, but on, on TV. The judge said that the penalty was appropriate. Um, the quote is, in the sense that one should not only appreciate the reparative function of civil civil liability, but also perhaps mainly the punitive function so that maybe once someday we can be free from racism and homophobia. $1.5 million, Jono, for, for calling someone a you know, pretty bad word, but wowzers. Yeah, yeah, defamation laws over there, wherever it is. Um, Brazil. Be, yeah, 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 Brazil. That's, that's steep. What do you reckon, Kev? Is that overstepping the lines? Is that going a little bit too far? Uh, well, what he said was out of order, so he needed to be penalised for that. Um, you can argue about what the cost was. I mean, I think it's relative to the ability to pay, right? And I don't think Nelson Piquet is short of a few quid. Um, on um, on Lewis Hamilton, I actually think Lewis needs to be a bit careful on that. Um, I mean, that's he risks being a pawn in a political game there and they're asking him to boycott his own sport, which is very different to what Lineker was doing. Um, so... I don't think that Lewis should entertain that personally, but um, I'm not an expert on motorsport, as you know, and I know you, you're you far more uh, abreast of that situation. But that, that seemed to me a little... I, I'd probably stay away from that if I was Lewis Hamilton. I think he's entitled to his view, and I, but I, as far as I can read, I don't think he's really given one uh, massively uh, about wh- whether he will or won't change that. But... Uh, but yeah, it, it's steep for Nelson Piquet, but um, I guess that needs to be, um, hopefully that's a deterrent for him saying those sorts of things again. I reckon one and a half. And Kev, I don't think, I think the sport is merely the the sandpit in which we kick around the sand in, in discussions of this. I think the sport, to, the specifics of the sport is to some degree immaterial, but it is fascinating to see how, uh, I don't know, how mercurial the whole, con- whole concept of freedom of speech is how hard it is to implement correctly and to, uh, I don't know, enforce. Is that the wrong word, Johnny? You got any quick, got a nice and easy solution for us here to wrap up? Dangerous ground and probably good for the lawyers at some point down the track, Reggie. And that's what it's all about. Kevin Sankstar, journalist whose work you'll see on Yahoo Sport and also the Inner Sanctum. Thank you once again for joining us on For and Against. Appreciate that, guys. And, uh, yeah, love your show. Keep up the good work. On to the shootout now, where we cover a few more topics in slightly quicker fashion. Uh, now, coinciding nicely with the initial success of the new NRL team, the the Homeless Dolphins. I'm calling them Homeless. Did you know homeless. they actually officially do not have a home location? I did not know that. What no. do you mean? They are the Dolphins. The bid was the Redcliffe Dolphins, and that historically is the team. But apparently in a bid to broaden the fan base, they chose not to call themselves Redcliffe. Right. They're the only team in the National Rugby League that is homeless. So where's their home ground? Well, you can't say that. You can't say that. I, I don't know, actually. <laughs> well, they, they played at Suncorp. They, Probably, yeah. They played at, is there a it's close enough to Brisbane. Maybe, I'm not sure. Anyway, so coinciding nicely with their success, uh, the NRL is looking to expand. So with an 18th team, the Dolphins having been the 17th, an 18th team mooted for the negotiation of the next broadcast deal, so the current one's expiring in 2027. So it's looking more likely than not that they'll play, uh, that so they'll add an 18th team in 2027. Uh, there is also talk of expanding the comp to 20 teams in the next decade. 
which uh, will apparently, John, have the effect of crushing the AFL, according to, I think it might have been a, a line in the news limited outlet. Funny that, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is really back to the future stuff, don't you think? I mean, I recall, remember the Super League Wars, the mid-1990s? I mean, this, this is one of the reasons for the Super League Wars, because there was that rapid expansion by the, I think it was the ARL, mm-hmm. which was mm-hmm. being called back in the day. Mm-hmm. So I think... Funnily enough, the ARL in 1995 expanded from 16 to 20 teams. So mm-hmm. they brought in, I think it was North Queensland, the, oh, South, the, the South Queensland Crushers. The Auckland Warriors came in, so yeah. that's when they came in. And the Western Reds, the Reds yeah. they were short-lived. Where are the Adelaide Rams? Where do they fit in? Well, they were super late. Ah. So, they, yeah, it was expansion everywhere. So, I mean, this is, you know, a bit of a plan that's been cooked up apparently by Peter Vlandis and Nick Politis, mm. the Roosters power broker. Mm. Interesting though, I mean, I think it's great that they're ambitious. I mean, in all seriousness, I, I can you can't have a rugby league competition with seventeen teams. The draw just doesn't work for okay. a number of teams. So, it makes sense to expand to eighteen. I'm surprised they're going to wait three or four years for that. The rumor is it might be a South Pacific Island um, team, so it's made up of sort of Samoan, Tonga, and Papua New Guinea players. Um, and yeah, the grand plan, as you probably saw as well, was that by the time of the 2032 Brisbane Olympics, they'll be up to 20 teams. I'm not, not quite sure what the connection is there, but mm. we'll see. Mm. It's good to have a 10 year plan, it's not oh, a nine year plan. <laughs> is it a plan? I don't know. Rugby League doesn't seem to be the, the sport that can really think that far ahead. No, with all due respect. Yeah, indeed. Are the Bears coming back? That's the important thing. The North yeah. Sydney Bears, obviously not North Sydney. They're part of the conversation. They are, and whether or not they might be folded into one of these teams. But mm-hmm. yeah, look, that's regarded as one of the founding clubs, and you know, might bring back a few of the uh, disaffected people who still hate Manly because of the fact that we exactly demolished the Bears, which is most of us. Is it? Are they a foundation club? They weren't. They're not in a way. Were they? The Bears. They're pretty close. Oh, I reckon they might have been. Really? Yeah. I've close. Cheeky Fiver on not being nineteen oh eight. Okay, I'll take you. Yeah. Right. Okay. We'll see that later. Like the last, they last won in 1920 or 21 or something okay. like that. Yeah. It'd be good to get North Sydney Oval back uh, with a bit of top grade rugby league. But, um, it could do. Uh, the A-League is a bit firmer in their plan. So Auckland and Canberra will join the A-League for season 2024 20, and 25 with another two to join a year later. So this is four teams going from eight to 12 in a matter of a couple of years. So, Jono, you, you warned about rapid expansion. Now, one of those uh, teams heavily favoured to come in the two years later, we've already established Auckland, Canberra coming up. Uh, of the other two, uh, one of those heavily favoured is going to be in southeast Queensland, with the other likely candidates being Wollongong or Adelaide or Perth or Tasmania. Right. Tassies? You know, they picked up it because the NBL's got a Tasmanian team. Hopefully the AFL, if Gil oh, and get his act together. Do you reckon rugby league? Uh, Tasmania? No, I don't think so. <laughs> However, maybe the North Sydney Bears. Founded in 1908. Oh, I lost my five bucks. Show me didn't shake hands there, mate. Won't put matters. Um, this strikes me as being a, also a bit ambitious. I mean, it's a very rapid expansion. Um, they're not coming from a massively strong base. Now, obviously, the um, oh, I can't think of the acronym. You know, the, the A League broke away. The, it's not the FPA, but it's something similar to that. Professional football. It's the PFA, so professional football, something like that. The guys that run the A League, mm-hmm. uh, FFA or whatever. No, the FFA is like the FIFA, right? And the acronym I'm trying to think of is like the Premier League. You know, right. just manage the top flight. Um, 
I don't know. It's pretty ambitious. It's a lot of extra teams coming in. There's a lot of not a lot of fans go to these games. Yeah, and the TV rights just not doing particularly well exactly. uh, on the TV. So yeah, look, I, I tend to agree. You don't want to dilute the product too much. Mm. Well, we shall see how that pans out. Quickly looking at FIFA now. FIFA, God bless them, has seen the light that us here at Fawn Against, along with many many others, it must be said. Uh, that shone so bright on the travesty that would have been Visit Saudi being the main sponsor of the 2023 Women's Football World Cup. Common sense has prevailed at FIFA. John, who'd have thought? Yeah, Gianni Infantino uh, took some soundings. Uh, his people were listening to For and Against and our show last month. And yeah, it's good news, isn't it? I mean, common sense, as you said, has prevailed. That just would have been a ludicrous decision. A rare glimpse of common sense at FIFA. Uh, also, common sense prevailed in the, the, the fact that for the next Men's World Cup, they are reverting, I suppose, to a more traditional format that, that is the four-team group. Uh, that is, if you can call an expansion of teams from 32 to 48 traditional. Yeah, not sure if it's, I mean, I, I agree having uh, 12 groups of four as opposed to however many groups of three is a much better decision. But yeah, 48 teams, I mean, this competition, it's going to take 40 days. I mean, it, it is just gluttonous, don't you think? It's just all about having extra eyeballs on the TV for those extra days. Because I don't think there's that many extra countries in the, on the planet these days. No, no, I think that could be right. I mean, it does mean that the uh, Socceroos are probably a pretty good chance because yeah. we will qualify through Pacific now. So we've just got to beat New Zealand, I think. Oh, really? So I think it's, it really it goes down to that. Yeah. You've looked at it in more detail than, my, than, than I have. Uh, we'll have more from FIFA in Red Card, Yellow Card. So stick around for that. Now, John, I want to talk supercars. I know this is not your bag, but bear with me here. Please. I want to give you a very quick, and it is going to be very quick, historical and cultural overview of top-level touring car racing in this country. Let me pull up a chair. Okay. <laughs> no, no, don't, don't disrespect. In essence, it's Ford v. Holden, right? Got it. This will not be news to you. Yep. Since 1967, only three Bathursts have been won by another mark. Jaguar once in 1985. Right. And Nissan twice with their... GTR. Was it Alan Moffat who won for the Jaguar? No, no, it was uh, Al, um, Armin Hahn and John Goss. Yeah. <laughs> of course you know. And, um, well, when Walkinshaw brought three Jags, one of them had to win. Uh, and 1991-92 with uh, Nissan. Anyway, so unless you remember the mid-60s, it's always been Falcon, with a couple of Sierras, versus Tirana or its successor, Commodore, right? That's the Ford v. Holden thing. Got it. So for 50 years, the whole premise of touring car racing in this country was Ford versus Holden and sort of Falcon versus Commodore. And then around 2017, both those manufacturers, Ford and Holden, pulled the pin on building cars in Australia, right? This meant not building Falcons and not building Commodores. So that was existential crisis number one for supercars. How are they going to hang on when the two cars that were the very basis of their product disappeared? They weren't, weren't available for sale. Now, Falcons were replaced by Mustangs, which you can at least buy here in, from the afford, friendly Ford dealership in Australia. The Commodores were finally pensioned off at the end of last year, replaced by the US General Motors Camaro. So still a link. That's right. I remember, as you obviously do, that Holden were essentially, well, they were the Australian General Motors outpost for quite a while. So Mustang versus Camaro. So this wasn't what Bathurst was built on, right? And... It's now been announced the Camaro by GM. Now it's been now been announced by GM that the Camaro will cease production. So now this hasn't stopped supercars from saying they'll use it until twenty twenty five. The Camaro, 
But then what? And what happens if the stang is pulled by forward? So, John, I worry for the future of the sport I hold dear. I think it's drifting further and further away from, and I'm, I'm half, I know I'm saying it's in a slightly silly voice, but I'm actually, there's a serious point here. It's drifting further and further away from the very underpinnings of the very rivalries that sustained the category for 50, literally 50 years. As what, an outside observer, do you see where I'm coming from? I do, but I mean, what is the future here? I mean, can you, you know, it's a kind of half serious question. Um, mm. I mean, do you see hybrid cars or, you know, being part of the future of, of this sort of racing? It has to be, doesn't it? In the next it's a very good question. 10 years. Well, I think a Prius versus a. I don't know about that. I'm not sure the sound of an electric motor really sort of no. grabs the heart like the sound of a thumping V8. I know that's a bit of a dinosaur kind of attitude. I know the V8 motor has, you know, got a, a short a short future. But I just sometimes wonder whether, you know, there's a number of motor racing categories that, that a, a casual observer like yourself wouldn't really be aware of that, uh, you know, they take the old 1960s, 1970s cars and they race them around and old blokes get really nostalgic about when they saw them when they were, you know, the real race cars in the 70s and 80s. So I don't know, maybe you just end up running these historic racing cars and getting 40,000 people out of Bathurst to watch them go around. Probably how it's going to play out. I'm not sure electric cars are going to work. They've got Formula E. It's mm. not really It's not really taking over Formula 1 anytime soon. Motorsport, perhaps a dying sport, Richie. Who knows? Oh, I, don't, I, don't, I didn't want to say it, Jono, but you may, just may, be on something. On to red card, yellow card, our favourite part of the show where we uh, drag back into the spotlight something that someone from sport has done, something silly preferably, something where not too much harm has done, uh, something that was embarrassing that they would love buried, and it's our job in this segment to bring it back to life. Jono, who or what is your nomination for red card, yellow card in this show? Slightly different one this show, Rochi. Mm-hmm. Um, so my research has led me to the world of Major League Baseball. Right. Uh, there was a recent investigative report, hard-hitting investigative no report, doubt. in Sports Illustrated, oh, yeah. uh, which tickled my fancy. Uh-huh. I had a look at that. And it turns out that this report found that the New York Yankees, when they take team flights, it turns out that players have to pay out of their own pockets for in-plane Wi-Fi. Mm-hmm. Oh, the horror. So apparently playing for the most valuable franchise in baseball doesn't come with all the perks that you might mm-hmm. think. Now, you have to pay for your own Wi-Fi on the team flights. It's $9 per flight, and it's docked from their pay. Now, having said that, it is a custom-built jet with poker tables and various other things. Oh, so this is not the, this is not the um, United Airlines jet? No, this is Delta the, or United. This or, is the Yankees. It's their, yeah, it's their own plane, but they wow. actually charge them 9 bucks a flight to use the Wi-Fi. And the roster of their players is $267 million. It's a pretty sad indictment on the Yankees. And what's a plane go for? Probably something similar, another couple hundred mil? A lot. <laughs> uh, and they haven't won a title. Well, I think they've won one title since 2000. I think George Steinbrenner would be turning in his grave about this. Um, so, yeah, look, I'm nominated the Yankees. They get pinged, each player gets pinged nine bucks a trip. Apparently. What if they don't use it? Ooh, no, I, think, I don't think it's an opt-in thing. I really? They just get pinged. Yeah. <laughs> that's crazy. That's, really, that's, excellent. that's a good get. And Sports Illustrated. Mm. Hats off to them. Hard hitting. <laughs> so we're going yellow there, John. yellow, yeah. <sighs> I promised earlier we'd hear uh, more about FIFA in red card, yellow card. Well, here it is. Uh, John, I tell you what, we take the mick out of certain individual sports people for giving us a rich vein of red card, yellow card material over time. And well, I think we'll have to do a Hall of Fame one day. But geez, as organisations go, 
FIFA is up there, up there too. They're, they've been a good contributor. Anyway, so FIFA president Gianni Infantino was recently re-elected unopposed at the 73rd FIFA Congress in Rwanda's capital city of Kigali. Now, in fact, he was re-elected. There's a few sort of elements to this. Uh, in fact, he was re-elected by what's called acclamation, a round of applause. <laughs> what a great way to win, eh? Just so no voting, no one put up their hands. Uh, that's right, just a round of applause. In Rwanda. Get back in, that's right. Imagine if political parties did that. You know, the new leader of the opposition is elected unopposed yep. by, by acclamation. Anyway, uh, and as another aside, Infantino also announced that his first couple of years in the gig when he took over from, from Ladder uh, weren't actually a full term, so therefore don't count towards the 12-year limit that the president usually has. So he can go again in 2027. I see. He's doing the Putin. Must be so liberating being able to just self-police like that. Oh, yeah, that's brilliant. Eh, eh. Uh, but his initial election in 2016 wasn't so straightforward. It wasn't a, a, clap, a clap on. He actually had to win a vote, uh, which he did against a perfectly Norman Bahraini sheikh uh, who was having a crack. Now, as part of being re-elected in 2023, he was back in Rwanda, remember, for the Congress. He recounted a story about his campaigning in 2016. He was in Rwanda in 2016, shaking hands, kissing babies. And when the then, and indeed I think current, Rwandan president, who was sitting in the front row of this 2023 recounting a story back in 2016. Am I making sense? Yeah, I'm Okay, good. Uh, The president said, Sorry, Gianni, we won't be voting for you in the, uh, the, this 2016 election. Infantino despaired and was about to give up on his bid to be president. But then, quote, and then I decided, I thought about it, and I remembered my visit to the Rwandan Genocide Memorial, and I said, who am I to give up? What this country has suffered and how this country <laughs> came back up is inspiring for the entire world, dear president. End of quote. So Gianni doing the uh, I am Rwandan. Yeah, just... Equating himself to... Well, naturally, a hasty clarification was pushed out uh, that Gianni was not comparing his own struggle to those of the Rwandans. Well, I think um, we've talked about Gianni before. He's got some struggles being a redhead, doesn't he? I mean, that was one of the issues that he had. Well, that's right. During the World Cup, he identified with people being discriminated against because Because he was a redhead redhead kid. He got got bullied for being a redhead at his house. In Switzerland. Yeah. Yeah. Geez, life's tough for some people, isn't it? Yes. That's red, can't you like I think we go red. Do we go red? Red for it's pretty really close. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's appropriate given the ginger thing, but I think just that's just a step too far. Uh, so with with Gianni being buried there on red card, yellow card, that brings an end to this episode of For and Against. Uh, so goodbye to you, Simon Johnson. Thanks for being part of the show. See, Richie, I think I'll give you a bit of an acclamation oh, for your performance tonight. That'd be great, mate. Thank you so much. And it's goodbye from me, Paul Roach. Don't forget, you can get us on Twitter For and Against underscore and on Insta, for.and.against. But until we all do it again in a fortnight's time, it's bye for now.